Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Blair Cook. And I'm Jed Nicholson. And today we are joined by Corey Bloom, who is a partner and Eastern Canada's leader of forensic at MNP LLP. Corey is a leader in her field and has expertise in fraud investigations and detection, forensic accounting, dispute resolution, shareholder and multi-party disputes, including estates, fund tracing, risk management, fraud risk assessment, anti-money laundering, forensic technology, litigation support and auditing, and election expense reviews. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. It is. And not only that, but Corey is also a former chair of the Board of Regents at the ACFE. She is also the recipient of the Governor General's Award of Excellence, and Corey has been invited to speak internationally on several occasions. And today we're going to talk to Corey about financial fraud, what are some current trends and forecasts, and giving us some advice on how we can be prepared for what's next in this very scary world. Let's get started. I'm very excited to have Corey Bloom here with me today. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. Corey is the Eastern Canadian leader of forensic at MNP Limited. She has a lot of designations. Your letters take up the whole line in your bio, which is pretty impressive. So you've done a lot of different things over your career. Can you start by telling us about uh, how you've gotten to where you are now? Well, that's a really good question. So thank you for asking that. <laughs> Um, I started went very young liking mysteries and I read a lot of mystery books. I always wanted to find the, 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 the missing item or the missing clue or figure out the mystery. Nancy so, Drew? Uh, for sure, Nancy Drew, a uh, long time ago and I read a lot of French books as well. I'm bilingual so I used to read a lot of uh, Club des Cinq and Clan des Sept, which are French collections of mysteries when you're younger. And then from there, I just progressed into the accounting field, and I found a fraud on one of my first audits. Um, wow. My base is audit. Um, so finding a fraud so early on, uh, the people surrounding me decided that I had an affinity for forensics and for fraud work, and I'm certainly glad they did, because anything a little strange or different that came from there, um, they would kind of just throw me in there and say, go. Uh, so it's great training. How did you then, find that fraud? Um, how did I find the fraud at, the, at that time? That was a, an interesting one because it was a very coercive type of uh, CFO who was in, in charge of that company, the company records. And what I did is when I was doing my audit work, actually at the time, I have a certain method that I do when I stop for a day, where I'm at, what I'm doing. And the next day, this, this person was gone. Uh, he had an emergency dentist appointment, toothache or something of the sort. And his second in command was around, and I asked for the same documentation and records that I was looking at originally. And when I got, when I received them, um, I saw it didn't finish with where I thought it should have. And I have a very visual memory as well, so I knew what the page should have looked like. Um, and from that point on, it was just a matter of moving it forward and saying, this isn't right. And there were actually um, two sets of books wow. that existed. So, um, because a lot of times fraudsters like to keep track of what they're doing. I know it sounds strange, but they actually like to keep track of these kind of things. Um, some of them, it's because they're very proud of it. Uh, others, it's because they want to know how much they're getting in that they shouldn't be. And in this case, he just wanted to keep track of what he was making over and above what he was already making in salary. Wow, how much did he uh, defraud the company? For? It was almost 800000 Wow. Um, when we found it. And um, it was a CFO? 
He was a CFO. That's quite the thing when you're a, a junior accountant to find that kind of fraud. Uh, yeah, and I find that I, I feel like we help people. We help uh, individuals. We help companies when we find these things. And right now at this point, and it's interesting that companies are becoming more proactive uh, than they ever were in the past. And if you think back to the Enrons, like 2001, 2002, uh, it really, I think, woke a lot of people up. Oh, absolutely. And now, we're, now we're getting called in to do some proactive work, like fraud risk assessments, to say, how can we reduce our risk of fraud? And once again, I, I feel like we really do, we help individuals, we help companies. And sometimes people think companies are just faceless entities, and it's not the case. When a company gets defrauded, everybody suffers. All the people in the company, um, the pensions sometimes, where there's people working in the companies, um, and the individuals surrounding it. Uh, so there's a lot of pain that happens when people get, when there's financial fraud involved. Oh, absolutely. So after that, you started to be known as somebody who had a knack for uncovering these types of things. And then where did you go with your career? Uh, well, from there, I did continue an audit for a number of years. I actually did some uh, tax as well because I didn't want to have a hole in my knowledge in any way, shape, or form. I was working with a big four firm at the time, and I actually uh, worked in the tax department for a while before moving back into um, like forensic-type work in a consulting, in an accounting firm, but in a consulting manner. So I do advisory work. That's great. So you are a... Uh, Regent Emeritus? Emeritus. Emeritus, <laughs> with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners as a past board chair. Very impressive. That group puts out a report to nations every two years, and in it they say that on average 5% of a company's revenue is lost to fraud every year. That is a really shocking stat. What do you think about that? Well, actually, if you go way further back, uh, it used to be 6%. Okay. Uh, but, but, don't, <laughs> but don't let the 5% fool you. It doesn't mean things are getting better. Uh, 5% is a really big hit for companies to be taking. Oh, absolutely. It could be a billion dollars or more a year, depending on the size of the company. Right. And, and this statistic has been very consistent throughout the years. And this report comes out every two years. Um, and it's really a global report. So they canvas um, fraud examiners from across the world. Um, and so this type, these types of numbers are, are huge. Um, they can really impact, impact a company's bottom line. Uh, and, and it sometimes makes the decision about you know, whether to go forward or not a, a very difficult one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. How do you define fraud? Well, there, that's also a very good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, there's a number of ways that fraud is defined, and all the different groups have different definitions. One of the common misconceptions uh, is that fraud is not criminal. And financial fraud is criminal. It's really? found in our criminal why, code. Why would it not be considered criminal? Uh, a lot of people don't view it as, uh, as that. They think that because it's financial fraud and it doesn't seem like somebody's going to the hospital or somebody's... Not um, physically injured or something like that. Correct, that, per, it, that it's not as serious a crime. Yet when you actually look at what the outcomes of some of these frauds are, for example, if you look in the Bernie Madoff case or Absolutely. even closer to home in the Earl Jones case... A lot of the victims were older. They were uh, widows, for example, in the Earl Jones case. And um, a, lot, a lot of bad things happen after that. For example, depression, sometimes suicide. So there is actually a physical impact. It's just not quantified. So people don't necessarily see that as criminal. But it, it, it really is, and it's found in our criminal code. So fraud is criminal, um, and there are definitions in the criminal code. The Institute of Internal Auditors, the IIA, also have a very good definition of what fraud is. 
Uh, one of my favorites, though, comes from the uh, Association of Certified Credit Examiners when I was uh, working with them. Uh, we put out a, a white paper called Managing the Business Risk of Fraud. And I'm going to just read you the definition really quickly because I think it really captures what fraud is. So it says, fraud is any intentional act or omission designed to deceive others, resulting in the victim suffering a loss and or the perpetrator achieving a gain. So to put it simply, there's really, um, there's deceit and concealment and there's intent. And to me, that's really what sums up what financial fraud is. And who is the most likely to perpetrate these kinds of frauds? Oh, well, that's uh, another good question. Um, there's been a lot of research into this area because white-collar criminals are not considered the same as other types of criminals. Uh, right now, the research is pointing to, on average, people between the ages of 40 and 59. So generally, a little bit of an older age group compared to some of the newer generations coming in the door. Uh, but it's also the people who are older, for example, 65 and over, um, tend to, if they do perpetrate a crime, um, there'll be a much bigger loss than, let's say, the people who are a little younger than that. There's also been a lot of research as to whether is it men, is it women, who's more apt to commit fraud. Interestingly enough, if you look at the ACFE globally, um, there tend to be more men who are committing fraud. I can tell you in our day-to-day, -day, uh, we see almost an even amount. So you have to look at the difference between what happens globally versus what's happening in North America. And is that basically culture? That there's perhaps less women that are in the higher ranks in organizations and other cultures that don't that's have access to it? That's absolutely correct. It has to do with country and, and where they're based. And um, in some countries, women are not either in the workforce or they're not certainly attaining the levels that we can in North America. Um, so when you're placed in a position of uh, higher confidence and you rise in the ranks in companies, that's really where the opportunity presents itself for somebody who will commit fraud. Right. So opportunity is really a big part of it. So I, we like to talk about the fraud triangle. So we have opportunity. What else do you need to commit a fraud? Well, there's really three things. But the key one for a lot of accounts out there for, for a lot of companies is the opportunity because that's, um, that's where it can happen. So the focus uh, then is reducing the, the opportunity. So better internal controls, as you said, focusing on fraud risk assessment, trying to to increase the awareness so it doesn't happen in the first place. Right, because the other elements of the fraud triangle, like rationalization, for example, um, companies or people, you can't necessarily stop if somebody's rationalizing to themselves whether they can commit fraud or not. Um, but what you can do to reduce the risk of fraud is look at your anti-fraud controls. Um, send a clear message to the people in the corporation that this isn't going to happen. Um, even as an individual, you can make a message to yourself and to the others around you that you're not going to be a victim and ensure that that and, and, and try to reduce your risk. Do you think things like ethics training that's now mandated by our profession, do you think that helps with reducing rationalizations? Changes people the way they think, perhaps? Um, and very interesting question. And based on my experience, I can tell you that uh, ethics training can help. Um, I certainly think it's a good tool, but it can't be an end all. Because what we see is sometimes the way people act in their daily lives, in their home life, is very different from the way people act in an organization. So if there's a certain culture that's taken hold in an organization, the same people who will see certain things as wrong at home won't necessarily see that as wrong within the organization um, if the people around them are, are working in a certain way and the message isn't clear in that company. Right, Once so the again, tone at the top, the, the what's expected of people, how other people behave, it has a very strong uh, impact on, on how you think. Tone at the top is critical. 
So the message that comes across has to be zero tolerance. And that tone and that message, it has to come across. And when I say at the top, and once again, people sometimes don't understand what the top is. It's very clear what the top of an organization is. Right, like is. the CEO, but it's not just the CEO. Right. You have different layers within organizations. So you have to make sure that that top at each different layer is actually that same message is coming across, is communicated, and that action is taken when it has to be. Right. So people have to see that the company is actually serious and will follow through. Right. That fraud won't, financial fraud is not tolerated in your organization. Exactly. So what are the latest trends in financial fraud? So, I mean, we all are hit with uh, phishing scams that are getting more and more sophisticated. And I'm, now I'm getting texts saying that my bank account is, is being compromised, for example, from when I don't even have an account at that bank, for example. So it's, it's interesting. How does this stuff happen? And, and why is it getting more sophisticated? Well, the examples you're giving are part of what we consider transnational type frauds because as the world, the world's big, but it seems it gets smaller and that's with technology, that the world does get smaller. So these types of phishing scams that are coming from other countries across the ocean and, and different bank scams, for example, like the one you mentioned, those have been facilitated by the fact that uh, internet and artificial intelligence, for example, are coming to the forefront. But to get back to your original question about what are, what's new in fraud, it really depends on what you're looking at. So for example, we're seeing if you're in a cash type of environment, and let's talk new markets. So if you look at the cannabis market, for example, it's a new and emerging market. When you have a new market, you have a lot of people, a lot of investors who start getting very excited and perhaps there's some good returns to be made quite quickly. But at the same time, you have fraudsters who are also getting excited because they know that there's going to be more funds allocated to that industry as they understand that investors are going to start investing. When the financial institutions aren't necessarily ready to take on certain risks, it becomes a more cash-based industry. And at those times, you're going to see more traditional methods or fraud screens that are happening from skimming and to the ways to actually reduce those types of risks that are associated with skimming. When you're talking about other types of markets, what we're seeing these days is some of the same scams that happened in the past, so if we're talking wire transfers, for example, but you're gonna see a modification of the way of the way that they're proceeding. So in the past, or and still, it, it's still recent, quite present, um, there's been a lot of wire transfer frauds, or sometimes we call them president's frauds. When you have an email that's spoofed, it looks like it's coming from a president or the head of the right. corporation, an employee receives it, and then they send, they, they change the bank account number and send it to the wrong account. And normally it moves around the world uh, quite quickly and very hard to retrieve. In these cases, and something that's come out even as, as uh, recently as last week, um, now what's happening is instead of getting that type of email, you may get a phone call from a voice simulation of your boss or of a boss. Really? Uh, yes. Wow, and that's scary. There was a $10 million fraud last week uh, just that, oh my that happened that way. Um, so now uh, when you talk about... Um, artificial intelligence or when you talk about data um, or technology, we're seeing some of the past frauds but that are being modified through the use of technology. I don't want to discount the human factor though because no matter how much technology advances, there's always a human factor involved, whether it's from the fraudster's perspective, whether it's from a deficiency within an organization, whether it's from a lack of a fraud control or a people understanding or an awareness of fraud or, or, or that is out there. Um, there's always a human factor involved. So how does someone protect themselves against that kind of fraud? 
we, we hear that you have to be very careful, you know, with the wire transfer example you gave by calling to make sure. And that's really, is it two-factor authentication? Is that really the best protection against this kind of thing? Well, I applaud the companies that are taking steps to try to protect themselves and their employees. Um, Two-factor authentication is a good way to, to, to help stop a fraud, but I'm going to go further in the example that I just gave you before. Um, so when you, when you have this type of wire transfer fraud that, that occurs, you're going to look and say, okay, let's say it, it, there was a voice simulation. It did sound like the president of the company calling and saying you have to uh, move this to another area or to another bank account and the employee is quite certain it is their boss because it is actually the boss's voice that is being used. So um, have they listened in on phone conversations? Is that where the fraudsters are able to, to do this kind of simulation? Well there's different ways they do simulation but sometimes I'm sure all of us have received these calls where nobody's on the other end. You're saying yes. hello, hello. Some people decide to have conversations on that. There's all different ways that they do it. It's what's important for the employees or for the organizations to understand that this is now happening. The fraudsters have been making a lot of money with wire transfer frauds, and they don't want to lose a good area of what they consider lucrative. So <laughs> You've got a good lucrative fraud going. You well, want to keep it going, go. right? So that the, makes sense, they, I guess. Well, that's it. So if they know that companies are taking taking some steps to reduce that risk, then they're going to try to modify it. So in order to protect yourself, you have to say, to me, you have to go back to the basics. And you say, how are we going to do this? Because each time they're going to try to modify the fraud, through whether it's through the use of technology or other ways, they are finding different variations. You mentioned the phishing scams, which you said are getting more sophisticated. Because at the beginning, they were able to scam a lot of people with very basic types of, of, of emails. Um, like my and, uncle in... Uh, Africa has left you some money. Those, those. I mean, we still get those, which I, I can't imagine that anybody still falls for that. But well, you know, it, once again, and it, you know, people. Some people are less aware than others when this comes about, and um, you know, they're trusting that this is the the right thing, and trust is a key component in these. And as you mentioned, these have become more sophisticated. They are getting better. There's fewer spelling mistakes and um, some more acronyms that are being used. So there's different ways that they make them better. So in order to protect. Uh, your company and your employees because by putting in anti-fraud controls you're actually protecting the employees as well not just the corporation um, so in order to protect them you can put anti-fraud controls you can do uh, fraud risk assessments to see how to reduce the risk of fraud and you can put in an ethics or a hotline a whistleblower hotline which is also good as well and the key would be educating people so that they become aware that these things can happen so in the wire transfer fraud we talked about before, um, if there's just a reflection, because we don't expect um, employees or corporations to become fraud experts, it takes years and years and years and experience, but just a reflection that maybe this is out of the ordinary, this is strange, to bring it forward to the next step, just that can help reduce uh, fraud tremendously. Yeah, I can imagine that. I know I had something that came from my own bank, it, it appeared, and I actually almost acted on it and then I stopped and thought is this actually legitimate and um, and discovered that it was not and that's exactly the the mind or the mindset that you want to have corporations and employees thinking and just that hold on wait a minute just that reflection can stop so many of these frauds from occurring but in order for people to get there uh, they need to be properly trained they need to have fraud awareness training they have to understand even what fraud is and the company also has to get a message message out there that is not tolerated. 
How do you think financial crime is going to evolve in the future? Well, um, once again, it depends on the types of markets or the emerging markets. So I would say that in the cash-based markets, it's still very similar to the traditional methods. In the newer or technology-based markets, there will be more modifications, like the one we talked about with the wire transfers. I can see that uh, it's certainly not going to be reduced because for a number, and there are so many factors of why I say that, one of them is even population-based. So when you, you look at the population in Canada, it's an aging population. There will be, at one point, lack of qualified people in the workforce. This can create a, an issue as well. You will have some of the population over 65 that choose to remain, and those people do have, uh, and I'm certainly not saying people over 65 are defrauding a corporation, but certainly certain people that do decide to stay on uh, will have more opportunity to do so. So it's critical for companies to actually um, put in really good anti-fraud plans in place or an anti-fraud framework in place as well. As the world is much more transnational, as we said before, it's also really good to have that perspective in mind that there are things um, across the world and to keep a, a broad mind about what is happening around the world as well as in Canada. Right, so that it can actually, because it's, it's, the world is so global now, anything that's happening somewhere else can certainly happen to us here in Canada as well. Well, yes, much more easily with uh, as technology advances as well, yes. So what would you say are your top three tips or advice for the CPAs that are listening to us to help them protect themselves and the organizations they work with? Once again, it's back to the basics would be my tips. So I'd say education, uh, awareness, and messaging. Um, to the companies who think that, um, I, and I've heard this a number of times, that, oh, we have the new younger generation coming in. So from a technology standpoint, we're covered because the younger generation tends to um, know a lot more when it comes to technology. Uh, so far, the research is showing that that's incorrect. They, it's correct that they do know a lot coming to technology, but they're not actually a line of defense at this point. So you want to make those people a strength as opposed to a weakness. Why are they not a line of defense? They're not a line of defense because they're so used to their apps and they're so used to Facebook and Instagram and all the social media out there. And nothing wrong with Facebook or Instagram, but because they're so involved with social media and every new type of, of different app that comes out. Snapchat. Um, I know my daughters are Snapchat. into that. And TikTok. <laughs> it just keeps, <laughs> and there'll keeps be new, coming. And exactly. there'll be more and more that keep coming that we don't even know about yet. Because they're so connected, it allows for actually a little more latitude in, in the way they're working as opposed to some older generations who don't take that same latitude and are more cautious. So instead of that being a weakness, though, you want to turn that into a strength. And in order to turn it into a strength, you need to have the proper education. You need to have these people be properly educated when it comes to fraud or anti-fraud or just a reflection of it could be out there. Is anybody safe? I would say nobody is safe from, I don't want to sound skeptical, but nobody is safe from fraud, no corporation, no individual. But what you can do is take steps to reduce your risk, and that's being aware. It's having the reflection you had. It's calling in professionals like us who are well-versed, who see it all the time, who know what to do. And it's, it, it's just not being passive about, about it. It's actually being a little more proactive about it, which actually we are seeing these days. That's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure.